0: All right, so, so I'd like to continue um, from the previous podcast. We we're looking at um, so the uh, different uh, historical perspectives in understanding mental illness, and I'm grouping these into three major areas: uh, of a supernatural perspective, a biological perspective, and a psychological perspective. And um, so far, uh, I talked some things about, um, mentioned some things about the supernatural perspective and biological perspective. And um, just to remind you, um, perspective shouldn't really matter in science, right? We're not interested in how things look from a particular standpoint or point of view. We're interested in how things really are. Um, And so we want to get past perspective in science, right? We want to know uh, the reality of things, not only what it looks like from a particular angle. Uh, however, at the same time, perspective really does matter a lot in the lives of people, uh, and um, how people with mental illness specifically have been regarded, the treatments that have been given to them, uh, done to them, uh, and you know uh, attitudes towards uh, folks with mental illness, right? So very real kinds of consequences of uh, different perspectives. So the last of the three major perspectives is, um, you know, what I would call a psychological perspective. But um, please bear with me here, because um, essentially, I'm using psychological in kind of the old fashioned way of using the term where we now know, of course, that psychology includes a lot of biology. Um, but, um, and so, you know, that's sort of, it sort of seems like an artificial distinction to say, a biological versus psychological. Um, but for a long time in human thought, and still in the minds of a lot Lot of people, there is this kind of separation between mind and body. Um, uh, Cartesian dualism, right? Blame Rene Descartes for, uh, for a lot of that. But uh, of course, we know mind and body are not separate. They, um, they are interacting all the time, and it's kind of artificial to try to separate them out. Anyway, but, um, but here I'm using psychological in kind of the old way of thinking of that term in terms of a person's mind or their own experiences in life or how they were treated uh in their lives or other things like that right um and how that influences uh mental illness kinds of symptoms now before even the uh founding of the field of psychology there were uh some you know some root uh uh some roots of this perspective uh, that it started to show even before psychology was a science. Um, <clears throat> and some of that comes uh, came from the reform movement and moral therapy. Uh, essentially, the reform movement um, uh, was an attempt that was really started by um, Philippe Pinel in France. There's another fella too. Pinel in Poussin. Uh, anyway, and um, you know, this carried on for many years, and one of the later reformers was an American named Dorothea Dix. Uh, and I think you probably recognize uh, Dorothea Dix, um, that, her name, because she's had a lot of mental hospitals named for her in the United States. We used to have one here in Raleigh, now we've got a park. Um, but um, uh, anyway, the um, reform movement was basically about trying to improve the conditions for people in mental asylums. Okay. Mental asylums had gotten pretty bad. Uh, Now, they weren't intended to be that way. They weren't intended to be prisons or places to punish the mentally ill. In fact, the term asylum means a place of safety, a place where you get away from things in order to be safe, safe harbor, right? Uh, If somebody is um, uh, seeking political asylum because they're being... um, uh, uh they're they're under persecution in their own country or something like that, right? Uh then um, you know, you're seeking uh safety and relief from that. But asylums got pretty bad. They're there um they essentially became places where folks with mental illness were sort of housed, warehoused, and you know, people and the conditions were not very good. Uh, People were chained to beds. They didn't get good food. They, you know, had their own filth all around them and stuff like that. Anyway, um, the reformers, uh, starting with Pinel in France, uh, said, you know, people in mental hospitals would do a lot better if we treated them better basically if we gave them more humane treatment uh gave them opportunities to go outside in the sunlight uh gave them um had had uh visitors uh social activities um let them take classes and um other other things like that right treat them better and they're going to do better <laughs> sounds like a uh, groundbreaking kind of thing but i guess it was at the time right and um, so they were able to do some. They were able to implement some of these reforms in some uh, mental asylums. And guess what? People in the asylums really did better. They did. Um, <clears throat> uh, the reform movement and moral therapy, treating people humanely, uh, were effective. Um, essentially, what they did was, you know, they had a lot of staff come in, and they had people, um, you know, be able to plant gardens and. Uh, Have um, uh, cultural arts performances and a lot of stuff like that, right? And people got better. Problem was, they didn't get better, they didn't get enough better. They didn't get better, (laughs) I'm sorry, they didn't get well enough in order to leave the hospital. So even though conditions improved for people in mental hospitals, the reform movement moral therapy cost a lot of money. You had to have, you know, really nice facilities. You had to have a lot of staff to to do all this sort of stuff to help folks. And in the end, people were like, well, you know, it's costing us a lot of money, but these people really aren't getting better enough that they're able to leave the asylum. And so mm, moral therapy kind of fell out of favor and conditions in mental hospitals deteriorated again. Um, uh, to the point where, you know, by the 1950s, um, there was a huge population of folks in uh, mental hospitals. Uh, That was the time when um, our population of uh, mental hospital, um, uh, admissions to mental hospitals was at its peak. It was something like a half a million people in the United States in mental hospitals, um, and, um, and up until the 1950s, again, there really weren't a lot of treatments for folks. Uh, so they were just kind of held there, right? And, the, and hospitals were, um, were often kind of uh, scary, depressing, and awful places. By the 1950s, we did see some improvements. Um, we saw some improvements in terms of uh, breakthroughs in medication. There were some medications that seemed to be seemed to show some effect. Uh, and some of the w- ones that first um, gained wide acceptance were, were ones that were medications for treating folks with schizophrenia, um, phenothiazine drugs, antipsychotic drugs. And um, <laughs> Uh, when they first tried out phenothiazines on folks, they started to get the idea that, wow, these really work for people with schizophrenia. Whereas before, there really weren't a whole lot of effective treatments, right? And um, and so they got exuberant, I think, <laughs> and believed for a while that they had cured schizophrenia or found a cure for schizophrenia. And then all these people in the mental hospital, at least people with schizophrenia, Could leave and they could go home or go back to their communities with a um, uh, prescription for phenothiazines and they'd be just fine. Well that didn't work out too well. Um, uh, This led to the deinstitutionalization movement. It was one of the things that led to the deinstitutionalization movement in the 1950s. Um, Essentially this idea that people could be managed on medications The problem with those antipsychotic medications is that, well, they come with a lot of side effects. So it can be really hard for people to maintain taking those uh, medications and keep on taking them. And when they stop taking them, they often go back to having psychotic symptoms. So, um, So medication compliance was a real problem. The other thing is a lot of these people had no place to go. Um, they had, you know, uh, lost touch with family, if they ever had any family. And so a lot of these folks ended up um, uh, destitute uh, and on the streets, homeless. Um, and this was a time in the United States when the majority of our homeless population was um Uh, former mental patients right that's no longer true Um, uh, now there's a lot of different reasons that people are going to be homeless not just due to mental illness but by the way that's one of the reasons why um, why a lot of people's ideas about homeless people and ideas about mental illness overlap right Um, uh, because there was kind of that um, that overlap for some time again it's no longer necessarily true but Um, uh, The other part of this deinstitutionalization movement um, was uh, was an idea of community mental health. You see, up until the 1950s, uh, a lot of mental hospitals were run by states state-run state-funded mental hospitals they tended to be great big places that were way off in the country um far away from uh population centers and so and you know in different places of the country they would even have ways of talking about you know it got sent up the river or something like that right um <clears throat> uh that you went to the mental hospital and um it would be far away and people wouldn't come visit you and you would be kind of forgotten the community health, uh, community mental health movement tried to change some of that and tried to bring treatment for mental health, uh, 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 folks with mental illness, um, into their communities, and so essentially shifted the funding source uh, from the states to the counties with the idea that each county was going to have a mental health center where people in that county could go and a lot of their treatment could be administered on an outpatient basis. People could stay in their local community, continue to be with families and uh, maybe jobs and stay in their homes and still get treatment. Well, that was probably a good idea. The problem was that a lot of counties just didn't have the money um and uh you know to run a state mental health ho- hospital costs a lot of money but the state budget uh, is a little more manageable in, in a state budget individual counties even a fairly wealthy county like ours wake county um you know we had a mental health center um uh wake county mental health um but um but notoriously underfunded right uh, and notoriously uh, overworked, uh, in that there was way more demand than there was um, uh, opportunity to prevent uh, to give services, and it was much worse for a lot of other counties. And so this also contributed to um, many folks with mental illness being homeless and destitute and um, not getting care for a while. Right. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, as you probably know, uh, psychology emerged as an in independent field you know in the late 1800s um, and uh, 1879, birth date of psychology. Um, <clears throat> but it didn't come out of nowhere, right? Um, if you took general psychology, <laughs> wait, I know you took general psychology. Um, when you took general psychology, if you looked at um, some of the history of psychology and you know some of the first things that's mentioned are Wilhelm Wundt in 1879 forming the first psychology laboratory. But where did all that come from? It didn't just drop out of the sky. Um, uh, there were some other kinds of roots of some of these things going back even further. And so um, some of the earliest psychological perspectives to emerge were a psychodynamic perspective, Freud and his followers in Eastern Europe, and a behavioral perspective, Um, uh, John Watson, uh, and like-minded folks, mostly in the United States, right? Very different ways of looking at things, very different ways of, um, uh, very different ideas even about what psychology should be, right? Now, um, uh, your textbook describes a good deal about, um, psychological, I'm sorry, the, uh, psychodynamic perspective and some things like that. What it doesn't tell you as much of is where did this stuff come from? Uh, I guess I mentioned some, but um, you know some stuff about psychodynamic perspective in Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, and some of his ideas are pretty strange, right? And um, and many times when people read about Freudian psychodynamic theory, they think, wow, where did this come from, right? Well, let me give you a little of the history of that um, uh, to show where some of these ideas came from. Uh, some of this started, uh, so we can go back to a French physician Named Anton Mesmer, um, Mesmer developed a theory uh, called animal mag- that he called animal magnetism. He essentially believed that there were magnetic forces. Mag- I'm sorry, magnetic fields that surrounded living bodies humans and animals and other stuff. Uh, And that if people had health problems, including mental health problems, it was because something was off with their magnetic fields. And so Mesmer believed that he could move magnets around people's bodies in certain ways, realign or readjust or something, their magnetic fields, and make them better. Now, this sounds like quackery and uh, it is um <clears throat> uh, but even then it sounded like quackery and uh um but mesmer's patients a lot of mesmer's patients really did seem to get better um so at the, you know there was something weird going on here uh and so there was a um uh, a medical commission that was um Uh, sent to study Mesmer at his laboratory in Paris and uh, observe him and see what was really going on here. Because we got these two weird things going on. This theory makes no sense. We don't actually have magnetic fields around humans. And yet Mesmer's patient's Many of them seem to be getting better. By the way, one of the people on this um, uh, on this task force to study mesmer was a fellow you may have heard of, uh, an American named Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> you know Franklin, right? <clears throat> uh, I don't know if this was before or after Franklin was a um, was a diplomat to France, but um, uh, he liked his time in France. Uh, that's another story. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, so they studied Mesmer in his laboratory. And you know, he would move these magnets around people. And a lot of times, people's symptoms would subside. They would seem to get better. So what the task force did was they replaced Mesmer's magnets with things that weren't magnets, <laughs> um, inert uh, things. Uh, they essentially tested this out with a placebo. Right? And um, <clears throat> uh, Mesmer moved his, Mesmer didn't know it. He moved these magnets around people and they got better. So what we got going on here is a placebo or an expectancy effect, right? That, um, that essentially um, people were being led to believe that, um, uh, that this was happening. It may have even been more than that in that um, Mesmer, uh, the way that he set up his kind of uh, magnet rituals, he kind of had people relax and get into sort of a trance state <laughs> you recognize the term mesmer, <laughs> mesmerism, uh, being mesmerized or in a trance? Well, Mesmer didn't actually set out to study anything about trances or hypnosis, even though that, that his name is associated with that now. Um, but what the task force concluded was that that was probably what Mesmer was actually doing, that he was actually sort of um, you know, uh, putting people into a suggestive state, uh, and he was getting a placebo effect right uh based on this well they um they published their findings the the task force published their findings mesmer was almost literally i believe laughed out of town <laughs> um, he was uh he was seen as uh you know a charlatan um and uh lost any uh, respectability however um the idea though of suggestion leading to um uh uh symptom abatement, um, was a compelling one. And other people got really interested in that, including another French guy, uh, a neurologist named Charcot. Uh, Now, Charcot was a very famous neurologist, and um, he did a lot of good stuff. He wasn't an inherently bad guy. uh, But um, um, he was a famous early neurologist, and he would have a lot of people um, come to study with him. And uh, Charcot tested out this idea of the power of suggestion on reducing symptoms in folks. And so he was interested in essentially what we might call now hypnosis or power of suggestion uh, and how that could work. Charcot seemed to believe that um, that for a lot of neurological patients who had symptoms that couldn't be explained neurologically, that he could use hypnosis to um, improve those symptoms for the people. But as I mentioned before, Charcot was very famous, and so he always had people coming into his lab to study with him. Um, uh, One of those people was a young physician from Vienna, Austria, named Sigmund Freud. (laughs) You see where this is going. Um, Freud spent a year in Charcot's lab studying with Charcot and learning Charcot's ways, and this seemed to be formative in the way that Freud um, built his own theory later on. Because here's the thing, Charcot seemed to really believe in his heart of hearts that he could hypnotize people, suggest symptoms to them, and they would get those symptoms. Or, uh, on the other hand, uh, hypnotize people who had symptoms and make those symptoms go away. He seemed to really believe that. But he couldn't just do it on demand. Every time that somebody came to visit him uh, who wanted to see him do it, he couldn't just produce, right? (laughs) So. What Charcot did was he hired some actors. <laughs> he hired actors to play the part of people who were gonna pretend like they had symptoms and those symptoms could be relieved. Or play like they didn't have pretend like they didn't have symptoms and pretend like they got those symptoms. Now, Charcot, I don't think he really thought he was doing anything fraudulent here. <laughs> he thought he was just demonstrating, right, for people. However, most of those people, including Sigmund Freud, probably never knew that this was just um, an act Uh, and so Sigmund Freud as far as we know went back to um, his own practice, his own home in Vienna never having known that he'd been lied to in this and that um, he fully seemed to believe in that power of the mind to create and um, also to treat uh, neurological kinds of symptoms. So. Um so that's what he based his psychodynamic theory on. He Freud went on to specialize in people who had unusual kind of uh neurological symptoms. That couldn't be explained through what was known about neurology in, uh, what, the 1890s or whatever, right? Which was a lot, but they didn't know about neurology. Then. Um, and um, and so he came to believe in the power of this unconscious mind. And that's kind of the foundation for um, uh, for psychodynamic uh, theory. Um, <clears throat> at, uh, at about the same time, we had some of the roots of the behavioral perspectives starting to come along. Um, uh Uh, Ivan Pavlov in Russia, uh, E.L. Thorndike in England. Thorndike? Oh gosh, I should know that. I don't actually know that, Um, where Thorndike was. I think it was in England. Uh, Anyway, um, uh, some of the roots of the behavioral perspective, right? And um, I'll um, I'll come back to those when we talk more about the behavioral perspective, because the behavioral perspectives build nicely on some of the early work of Pavlov with classical conditioning and Thorndike with the law of effect, which is the basis of um, operant conditioning. Right. Um, so we'll come back to those later, but I uh, just wanted to give you some, a little bit more detail about the roots of the psychodynamic perspective, because... That um, helps to make Freudian theory make a little bit more sense, I guess. Anyway.